All right, let's pray. God in heaven, we are grateful. We are grateful for your love. We're grateful for your mercy and your peace and your grace. We're grateful for your son and your spirit. Uh, We're grateful for the scriptures uh, inspired by the spirit and descriptive of your son. We pray that in our time together that um, you would receive our um, sacrifice of time and study and that you might be glorified in it. We pray that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. We pray that we would have hearts that are open, that we'd have wisdom to discern, and that we would have courage to respond uh, and live faithfully uh, in the light of the Scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, So, uh, my life is, is one of convergence, right? So on the one hand, I, I have my, my life at the college, and on the other hand, I have my life at the church. But because of my, my specialty at the college, those two overlap and, and interlock quite nicely. Um, I could have um, kind of just pursued, though, just my professional career and, and not um, necessarily been this active in the church. But that is not how God has kind of made me. There, there's something about just the, I don't know, just the, the grittiness of life. Um, I mean, this week in our uh, pastoral staff meeting, uh, we have birth announcements and baby dedications are coming up. We have two weddings that are coming up. We have a bunch of people who've signed up for baptism. Um, we have a number of projects that the elders are getting ready to work on uh, in terms of the facilities and things. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a buzzing place around here, and I love it. Um, so uh, a few things. You may or may not have heard the last book of the New Testament referred to in the plural as Revelations. Uh, that's actually a misnomer. It's, it's the book of Revelation, not Revelations. Uh, so it often gets called Revelations, but we're going to call it Revelation. It used to be a real pet peeve of mine, but that's when I was younger and more impatient. Now it doesn't really bother me that much. But in any case, that when you say Revelations, it makes it sound like there's all these little things, like little secrets, little codes, and that we're going to open them up, and you're going to break the code, and you're going to tell the future. That's, I mean, that's exciting, but that's more akin to reading tea leaves and looking in the crystal bar and, and reading your horoscope. If you, if you think that you're going to read some text, even a sacred text, and, and you're going to know exactly kind of a one for one, it's revelation. It's the revelation, singular, of Jesus Christ. That is, Jesus is the one who is revealed. And... It's of Jesus Christ, meaning it's Jesus's. It's like Je- it belongs to Jesus. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, meaning God gave it to Jesus, to show to his servant John what must soon take place. And he did so, that is John, um, or that is Jesus, excuse me. Jesus showed him by sending his angel to John, who wrote down all this that he saw. So that's one thing. The other is this. 
growing up uh, in uh, a Pentecostal church, Revelation was, for the most part, not treated like the rest of Scripture. Like, we love Scripture. Like, we have this really high view of Scripture. God's Word. And we believed that, we understood that it was old, it was historical, you know, written by the Jews at first and later by the Christians, but we believed that, that God spoke through it to us. I mean, we believed in a way it was written for us. And so even though it might be the word of the Lord to Amos or the word of the Lord to Isaiah, we read it like it was the word of the Lord to, you know, the Ford Church of God. That's the name of my church. It didn't have to do with Chevrolet like Ford, but the river. I was in the mountains in, you know, Virginia, and it was seven-mile Ford, seven-mile long river, and it was called the Ford Church of God. However, when we read Revelation, we kind of read it as though... Not as though it was kind of God's word for us, like it was going to tell us something about Jesus or something about God or something about the spirit or something about the church or something about how to live or how to overcome or how to endure suffering. It, it got treated as though, as, again, like it was this secret code book, that it was separate. We didn't read it like we read the Gospels. We didn't read it like we read Isaiah. And I get that it's a different genre. You know, we, and we read different genres differently, right? You read a, a poem differently than you read the newspaper, you read a newspaper differently than you read um, a grocery list, right? An electric bill, very exacting, you owe this much money. Um, a thank you note, not so exacting. There's not some particular response that you have to give to a thank you note, right? So it is a different genre and it, and it requires different attention, but it's still, and this is, this is my confessional belief, right? It's still the word of God. It's a sacred text. It's scripture. And as such, it's good for uh, teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness, to quote, to quote Paul from elsewhere. And it's not, I'll say this too, it's not um, solely about the end times. There are things about final reward, final uh, judgment, how things end. But there's a lot in this text that, you know, was written by John to and for Christians who were living in Anatolia, uh, Asia Minor, modern day Turkey. And it was about how they could respond, how they could be faithful Christians in the presence of a Greco-Roman culture and government that was not Christian. There was, so there was a lot to learn there um, for them and now I think for us. I mean, can you imagine what it would be like to have to live in a world where the dominant culture and your government was not Christian? That should not take too much of an imagination <laughs> for, for you. Um, all right, so let's say something about this particular genre. So um, when I say genre, you know, we're talking about types. So we have different types or genres of music, and I imagine they're different different um, preferences in the room. So some of you like country western? Yes or no? Some of you like jazz, uh, classical, pop, alternative, rock, so on. You know, yeah, Hans Zimmer, um, <laughs> Car Carolyn McHale. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's, that's music. So let's think, let's think of genres in terms of art. 
So I'm, I'm a big fan of the modernist. I love Picasso, Matisse, Chagall. I mean, that's, that's my time, kind of uh, early 20th century. Uh, Angela is more of an impressionist. She seems to really like, you know, Monet in, the, in that crowd. Um, I'm very impressed. Uh, I always thought he was weird when I was younger, but I'm very impressed by Salvador Dali. I don't know if you've been to his museum in St. Pete, but that's, that's amazing stuff. So those are genres in terms of, of art. So we have music genres, we have art genres. genres. Um, let's talk about literature for a second. What types of literature genres can you think of? History, right? A lot of people like history. Romance, yeah, yeah. We like we liked those feel goods, you know, the fuzzy, warm, you know. Um, old Shane, you know, he turned back and looked. Sci-fi. Sci-fi? I actually am a big fan of sci-fi. Yeah, what's the, what's the other one? Poetry, yeah. Knowing, knowing the rules of the game, knowing the rules of, of your genre is incredibly important. Um, let's take a stop sign, for example. Uh, a stop sign is a particular kind of genre. It's a road sign. And there are certain things that, that you, as the reader of the sign, need to know about how it works. So when you pull up to a stop sign, what do you do? You stop. You make sure nobody's coming, you keep going, right. Call it the California roll, right? Before there was the sushi, there was this just kind of rolling through the stop sign. So when you, when you pull up to a stop sign, now, you know, some people are, are very, they're, um, they're very committed to literalism, right? I'm going to do what it says, especially when it comes to Scripture. I'm do what it says. So you pull up to a stop sign, you do what it says, you stop. But then what do you do? Eventually, you go. But does the sign ever say go? No, but, the, but if you understand the meaning of the sign, you are supposed to go. Even though the sign never says go, conventionally, the way the sign works, you're supposed to stop, look, you know, um, yield, perhaps the right away if, you're, or if somebody else has it or whatever, and then go. That's how stop signs work. Well, fair enough. Not just Lakeland. But we have challenges everywhere. I've run stop signs before. My grandmother. May she rest in peace. She, she was awful. Stop sign for her meant speed up and get through it before the next guy comes. Um, the book of Revelation is a particular kind of genre that is full of symbolism. Um, it's, it's narrative. It like tells a story. Like you can read it. You know who the protagonist is. You know who the antagonist is. There's, there's plot. There's, there's character development. There's point of view. There's a climax. There's a conclusion. I mean, it's definitely a story. And they were actually very popular um, 2,000 years ago. So there are actually a lot of Jewish apocalyptic text. Um, it is my professional expertise, actually. I'm a, I, I am a Jewish and early Christian apocalyptic expert. That's like kind of what I do for a living. Um, so uh, first Enoch, second Baruch, fourth Ezra, Jubilees, sections of the Dead Sea Scrolls. 
as well as biblical, particularly Daniel 7 through 12, Zechariah 9 through 14. Um, that's, that's Jewish and Christian apocalyptic literature. So a couple of things you need to know. It is thoroughly symbolic. I mean, symbolism is the, is the um, foundation. It's, it's the essence of how those texts work. They are not trying to tell us anything in any kind of straightforward way. Um, so if you've ever read Revelation and you feel like John must have eaten a bad taco the night before or, or perhaps somebody slipped something into his drink because it's a little psychedelic, that's the way that type of text works. It's full of, of beasts. It's full of kind of cosmic um, disasters. It's, it's full of action. I mean, some of that I like, right? Things come down from outer space, um, interaction with these kind of earthlings, these other things. I mean, it's, it's not so far from the sci-fi stuff of, of modern day. So as, as we go through and as we read, we're going to want to keep an eye to that, right? That it is so thoroughly, so thoroughly symbolic. Um, tonight, though, as we look at worship, we're going to focus in on chapters uh, 4 and 5. It's a throne room uh, vision that John has. So it's not, un, it's not atypical of Hebrew prophets. And I think uh, John is definitely kind of in that category. It's not atypical of Hebrew prophets to have a vision of the throne. Uh, Isaiah has one in Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, Ezekiel has one in Ezekiel 1, 2, and 3. Um, and so we have John's vision recorded here. And I might just say this too about visions. I don't, and this, this kind of, again, comes from my own kind of Pentecostal upbringing. I don't know if you've been, any of you have ever experienced a vision. Like you feel like you've, you've actually seen like being awake and kind of seeing something that and it was like spiritual, like God was telling you something. But I do know that all of you have experienced dreams. Like I know everybody dreams. Now, maybe you don't always remember your dreams, but everybody has dreamed. And you know this about your dreams, whether, whether your dreams are spiritually significant or not. In your dreams, the laws of physics do not apply. Like you've been dreaming something and you're at work and next thing you know, you're at bed. Next thing you know, you're at church, right? We all had those dreams growing up where we ended up at school in our pajamas, right? That's a very common dream. I don't know what that means. I've talked to my psychologist about that one. But um, that's how dreams work. Visions are like dreams. They don't have to follow the laws of physics. You see one thing and all of a sudden it's something else and then it's something else. Uh, one of the best examples of that, I think, um, is in chapter 12 where John has this vision. He sees this woman clothed in the sun and as he starts to talk about her, you're thinking, oh, this is a symbol for Mary. Oh, no, I'm not, not Mary. It's Israel. Oh, no, it's not Israel. It's the church. Oh, no, what? I mean, she's shifting. The, it's like a hologram, right? But I'm okay with that, right? Because that's how visions, that's how dreams work. Um, and, and I'll say this too as we start to look at John's vision of the throne room, um, the New Testament, Revelation included, uh, doesn't so much have this vision of heaven as this place that's far, far away, as much as it has this idea that heaven and earth are part of that which God created and they overlap and interlock. So 
heaven is also near in a way. In a way, heaven is the spiritual reality that God inhabits, right? That the, that the non-physical inhabits. Um, so there was a, a Russian cosmonaut, the, the first uh, human being actually in outer space. Um, and when he got up there, he looked around and he said, we're right. We meaning he and other atheists. There is no God. So I'm not exactly sure what he thought he might see if there was a God when he got into orbit. I mean, was he expecting um, a, a Michelangelo? You know? <laughs> right. I, was in, I was in the Sistine Chapel actually this past summer. It's beautiful. But, but God's not that big bearded guy reaching out to touch your finger. And so we all laugh about that now because, because now we know more about going to outer space than they did, whatever, 60 years ago when that happened. Um, but I don't know if our thoughts about heaven actually have advanced that much. So we don't think it's just above the earth. It's just, it's just farther away, right? It's in some other galaxy. It's through a wormhole, you know, or you have to go warp 10 or something. We've been overly influenced, I think, by, by Star Trek and maybe by our sci-fi. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Heaven is part of God's creation. It's not like God was there and he created everything else. Heaven is part of what God created. And um, the, the presence of God, when we talk about God being on the throne, it's a, it's, a, it's a metaphor. It's an important metaphor, but it's a metaphor. It doesn't mean that God has a rear end and he has to sit down. Where would that throne be? In some other galaxy? Inside a black hole? Where do you think God's hanging out on that throne? To say that God's on the throne says that God's in charge, that God reigns, that God rules. That, and that is not somewhere else far, far away, somewhere over the rainbow in a galaxy long, long ago where no one has gone before. That's, that's also here and now. So, the prophets. Um, when Isaiah had his vision of God in the temple, when Ezekiel has his vision in Babylon of God on the throne, did that mean that God hadn't previously been there? Or does it mean that the prophet is just now seeing it in ways they previously hadn't seen it? So I'm convinced it's the latter. So Moses is on um, uh, Mount Sinai and he sees a bush. It's burning, but it's not being burned up. And he hears this voice or has this impression, right? Moses is experiencing the, the presence of God. He's experiencing the heavenly realm. The veil, so to speak, that separates us normally from being able to perceive the nearness of God is, is thinner for the prophet in the prophet's spiritual experience. And maybe sometimes for you too, maybe you felt the presence of God before and you knew that God was with you right then and right there. 
That's, that's this experience. Um, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, I've said this before in church, but it's worth repeating. Elizabeth Barrett Browning has a poem. It's like 90 pages. So it's going to take us a while to read through it. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it has a stanza in it that says this. Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit round it and pluck back blackberries and dab their natural faces unaware. Earth is crammed with heaven. God is closer to us than we are to ourselves. We might not realize it, right? But in the poem, the comment is every bush is burning with the presence of God. Sometimes people see it. And when they do, they take off their shoes because this is holy ground. But for those of us who don't realize that God is so near, we just think, oh man, that's a nice bush. That's good blackberries. So John has this vision. He has this vision of, of the um, throne room. Uh, again, something that I'm like very convinced of is John's vision in chapter four and five as he sees the throne, as he sees the one who sits on the throne, and as he sees all of heaven and earth and what's on the earth and under the earth and in the sea, all giving glory, all giving worship to the creator. This is not some vision of the future, like something that will happen. This is his burning bush. It is his vision of the present. He's, he's getting a glimpse of what the ultimate reality is like. God's on the throne. And creation is worshiping God. Now, perhaps people don't always join in. But as the psalmist says, the waves, the trees, the rocks, they're all worshiping God. And that's, and that's what's going on here. I might have said this um, in a sermon recently, but John hears this kind of worship song in, in Revelation chapter 4 that says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who uh, was and is and is to come. That is very, very similar to the song that Isaiah heard, right? When Isaiah had the same experience, I'll say, or similar experience, with the same God. Similar experience, same God. Different guy, Isaiah, not John, right? But he has this spiritual experience, this vision, and he sees, oh, God's here. Oh, yeah, God's here. Where do you think God was? Somewhere else? Like, I, as, as I said, I was running a little late today. It wasn't like I thought, like, oh, no, God's going to get to church before me. Right? If God's with us, and which we believe, right? It doesn't mean, like, if you hurry home, you can get there before God does. God is everywhere. It's just a matter of realizing it. And in realizing it, then it, it prompts, it generates kind of very naturally out of us uh, worship. Isaiah has this vision. He hears the song, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Um, it is interesting that in John's version, it's not the whole earth is full of his glory, but rather the one... Uh, holy, holy, holy is Lord God Almighty, the one who was and is and is to come. It's a real, it's a common phrase. 
in Revelation of um, how John refers to God. It's interesting. John never calls God Father. In fact, he doesn't have a lot of direct comment about God. It's more indirect. Um, the one who sits on the throne. The, the Lord God, the Almighty. Um, the, those, those, those types of comments. And so, it's interesting to me that with John, perhaps he's not as optimistic as Isaiah. Perhaps he's not as caught up in, in, the, in the glory of, of the presence of God as Isaiah. But for Isaiah, the whole earth is full of his glory. John doesn't say that. And if we read the rest of the story, there might be good reason John didn't say it. Rome is big and bad, and the people who are trying to live as Christians in Ephesus and Smyrna and Thyatira and Sardis and Pergamum and Laodicea, they're up against it. So for John, it's as though in the end, when God comes, right, he's the one who was and is and is to come. When God comes, then the earth will be filled with his glory. But now, <laughs> we're kind of up against it. Um, I just, I find that fascinating. And it kind of ministers to me. Kind of, not unlike what uh, Phil said on Sunday, the passage from Romans 8 doesn't say all things are good. That's ridiculous. There's plenty of things that are horrible. But it says that God can work all things for good. That means that God can take a good thing and make good things out of it, even better. And God can take a bad thing and make good things out of it. God works all things for the good, not that all things are good. And I think John is up against it. And I think that has influenced him. To, to talk about God as the one who is to come um, reminds me, too, of the Lord's Prayer. So we pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let's just pause there. What are we praying for? We're praying that God's kingdom, which is established in heaven in the spiritual realm, God's will, which is perfectly complete in the spiritual realm, will somehow come into the physical reality, the reality that we inhabit, earth. That's an interesting thing to pray for. I mean, it's what we've been taught to pray, right? It, it does beg this question, though. If we're praying for God's kingdom to come and we're praying for God's will to be done, is there a real sense in which his kingdom is not yet here? And is there a real sense in which his will is not yet being done here? Now, I'm not trying to disturb you in terms of what we think about God's sovereignty and all. But if I look around at the world, it seems to me there are a lot of stuff that God wouldn't like. That I would say, no, that's not the will of the Lord. God would judge that. Sometimes it has to do with something that I do. You guys pray for me. I 
struggling with the kids. I'm serious. These foster kids are testing me. I ain't, ain't quite the Christian I thought I was. <laughs> I thought, man, when I was young, I had a bad temper. I must have outgrown that. I think I didn't outgrow it. I think my life just got easier. <laughs> Still got all that trouble down in there. I'm going to pray about it. So whether the evil's in here, right, that I got to pray about, or whether the evil's out here, not like the, you guys, but out, out here in the world. But yeah, when kids starve, when someone gets molested, when um, someone dies, when there's a tragedy, to say, well, God knows best. Well, maybe, maybe God does know best, but maybe what God's doing is God's going to come and take all that bad stuff and make it into good stuff. It doesn't mean that we have to say, oh, that's good. That's ridiculous. I mean, from my perspective. So we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then we get to Revelation and God is described as the one who was and is and is to come. If God is the one who is to come, there is some sense in which God's not yet fully here. That's what we're praying for. It's what we're waiting for. And it is our hope that this is not how things will end. In the end, God will come and things will be better than what they are now. And that should be reassuring. And I think that's exactly what's going on with the kingdom and the coming of the kingdom. And I think that's great. It is interesting, just, just for a second, for you grammarians out there, uh, was, you know, past tense verb to be, is, present tense verb to be. It doesn't say that God is the one who was and is and will be, which is, might, might be what you would have expected based on the grammar, Right? Past tense verb to be, present tense verb to be, future tense verb to be. God is the one who was and is and will be. It makes God sound very static. Almost like Aristotle's unmoved mover, first cause. Which is brilliant philosophy, I guess. But it doesn't seem to be Christian revelation, right? What's revealed in scripture is that God is not some unmoved mover, impassable. But God is this kind of most moved mover. God, who's, God is the one who is to come. And it's the coming of God. It's the coming of the kingdom that will make things right. It was Jesus' message. It's what John still talks about. Um, in, in, in this chapter, though, as we move on, God is worshipped as the creator. That's, that's the cause of the worship. God's not being worshipped because of Jesus. He's not being worshipped because of redemption. He's not being worshipped because of any other reason. The only reason that's stated in Revelation, Revelation chapter 4 is that God is creator. And as creator, he's worthy of worship. Glory and honor and power and might forever and ever be to God. Um, it's interesting. The Bible opens with the story of creation. It closes with the story of the new creation or the renewal of creation. But here, right now, we should worship God because God is creator. 
says, it says all sorts of things. I think it says something about the value of creation. I think that's also spoken of a bit in the incarnation itself. But um, again, you know, I'm kind of an Appalachian American, hillbilly Christian. And we were kind of taught, we were very outdoorsy, right? So we were, we were conservationists, right? We, 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 we hunted and fished and stuff, but we, we loved the land. We cared for it. I mean, I, I grew up, remember that, um, that commercial with the Native American fellow and had the tear running down his face yeah. about littering? Yeah, man, I love that thing. Man, I'm not going to litter. Um, God is creator. And this is another thing. This is a tough one. Um, not to say it's nowhere else in the New Testament, but without the book of Revelation, there's not much worship of Jesus. Like, can you think of a place where Jesus is worshipped? Outside of Revelation. Like, can you think of a place where anybody ever prays to Jesus? I mean, prayer is a, is a very key part of worship, right? You, you pray to who you worship to. Those things go together. And in, in the New Testament, the prayer is to God. The prayer is to the Father. You pray in Jesus' name. You pray in the power of the Spirit. But your prayer is to God. Right? And worship is to God. Like, prior to Jesus, we had the sacrifices. They sacrificed to, to God. So, in terms of acts of worship, there's really kind of very little that goes on. I mean, you see Jesus praying to the Father. You see other people praying to the Father kind of through Jesus or in Jesus' name. But you don't get much, you don't really get anybody praying to Jesus in the New Testament. And you don't get much worship of Jesus until you get to Revelation chapter 5. And here you get this, I mean, not to say that there aren't other very, very high Christologies. John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. Or Colossians chapter 1, all things were created through him, and he holds things all together. But in Revelation chapter 5, the Lamb takes the scroll, and a new song is sung. The song of redemption. Now, I have heard people say that the song of redemption is a uniquely human song. That no one else sings the song of redemption. Uh, I had a pastor once that said, angels can't sing the song of redemption. I thought, man, that's a strong statement. What is interesting, though, it might, it might be the human choir, the, the 24 elders, that... that and the throngs and throngs that initiate the song. But then everything else says amen. Meaning everything else has joined in with it. To quote Paul just one more time. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says all creation is groaning, waiting for its day of redemption, waiting for the sons of, of men to come. Right? So that Creation might be suffering from sin or the effects of sin. The ground got cursed. But there's not, we don't believe that creation other than humans sinned. I mean, except for maybe kutsu. It seems to be sinful. Kills all my other plants. But, but generally speaking, sin is a uniquely human phenomenon. But it seems to have affected the rest of creation. But when humans are forgiven... The curse is lifted. 
And creation, too, gets redeemed. That's Paul. But I think it's also something that's going on here when everything else gives the amen. Let it be so. Um, there's a rainbow um, here. It's the only, it's the only rainbow um, in the New Testament. It says there's a, a bow around the, um, the throne. Some people have interpreted the bow to be like a bow, like a bow and arrow. It becomes a little clearer in chapter 10 that that's, that's pretty certainly not the case. Um, but it, is, it does have this kind of, again, kind of barring from other images, this kind of promise of, of, the, of the work um, that God is doing as, as the lamb is worshipped, as redemption is provided, and as um, all creation seems to participate in that. So God is worshipped because of creation. God and the Lamb are worshipped because of redemption. And that kind of brings at least this initial worship scene in Revelation to a close. Um, how does that work for us in, in what we do? I think a couple of things. I think sometimes we talk so much about Jesus that we sometimes forget that Jesus liked to talk about the Father. Um, or that the Spirit will lead us into all truth. That Jesus says that I'm leaving, but God will send another advocate. Another one. Well, who's the first one? Well, that's Jesus. And that the presence of God now that we have in this world is the Spirit. The Spirit testifies of Jesus. Jesus um, now resides with the Father. Um, the Trinity is actually not just some nice kind of Christian idea that kind of confuses people sometimes. It's actually quite essential to how this thing works. God, has, God the Father has always loved the Son. And the Son has always loved the Father. And the spirit of their relationship is not just the inanimate essence, but is the spirit. And, and that becomes, or is, the, it's the essence of, of existence, but it's now the, the model of how things work. That inner differentiated relationship. We probably, um, and it took the church about 400 years to work all that out in the early church. We probably can work a little better at that again in terms of the role of Jesus. Now, uh, I'll, I'll close with this statement and then we can, we can talk some more if you have any comments or questions and about anything really. But um, the image of Jesus here, uh, and, and we'll talk more about this next week in particular, when John sees the scroll, which would be the word of the Lord, right? So he's a prophet, right? Word of the Lord comes to the prophet and the prophet says. So here we get this very um, pictorial vision. He sees a scroll. It's sealed. That means no one can get into it, which means he's a prophet. 
but he doesn't have anything to say. Right? He, he, can't, he can't have access to it. Very, very similar to Isaiah a little bit, if you remember Isaiah. Isaiah said, um, God said, whom shall I send? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And God said, well, no one's going to pay attention to you and no one's going to recognize you. And he's like, well, how long is it going to be like that? So there's, you know, that, that struggle time. So for John, it's a struggle time because the, the scroll is sealed and he weeps. It says John weeps over that. Well, he weeps over it because he's a prophet. How, what's he supposed to say? But then he hears that the line of Judah can open it. But when he turns and looks, what he sees is not a lion, but a lamb. And not just a lamb, but a lamb that had been killed, but yet it's now standing up that has now provided our redemption. The, the death and resurrection of Jesus, I mean, is at the heart of the Christian gospel. And it's at the heart of Christian worship in Revelation. That shouldn't surprise you in some ways, right? I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe the Bible's a little repetitive, but this is an important part of the story. But, but at the heart of worship in the vision of the throne is a lamb that had been slain, but has yet now been resurrected. It was slain, but is now standing. I love that. All right. So I'm not sure what you expected when you came to a study on Revelation. Um, I thought this was a good place to start, partially because I like to talk about worship and partially because I, I want people to be able to read Revelation and spiritually and theologically uh, appreciate that it's, it's part of this same story about Jesus. Jesus.